following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. So if uh, this is your first time, welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church, first of all. We're so glad you're here. Um, Also, if this is your first time, I'm sorry you came in on week three of a four-week series. We're going through the book of Ruth. I will do my best to quickly, and I do mean quickly, bring up the speed, and then we're going to jump into chapter three. So the book of Ruth goes something like this. Elimelech takes his family, Naomi, their two boys, to Moab to escape the famine, to try to get fed. Um, While they're there, Elimelech dies. While they're there, the two boys end up marrying Moabite women. This is a bad thing. Um, After a time, the boys both die also. Now we have three ladies, three widows who are destitute. They hear about food back in Bethlehem. They're going to go back to Bethlehem now. They start back to Bethlehem. Last week what we covered was the process in which we saw Naomi being destitute, letting Ruth go out to the fields and start gleaning. She just so happens to find herself in the field of a man named Boaz. And as we have seen through this, we see this as very significant. It's not a small thing. Because this man, Boaz, happens to be at the end of the chapter, we realize when, when Ruth comes back to talk to Naomi and says it was the field of, of, field of Boaz that I went to, she explains, bless the Lord, this is one of our kinsmen redeemers. He's a close relative of ours. And at the end of the chapter, we saw she stays in the field, she continues to work, she continues to bring home grain, and God provides for them very well in that way. What I want to do before we jump into chapter 3, though, so God has provided for them in some way already, but I want to do before we jump into chapter 3 is explain for you something that we don't understand well. I don't, and I don't think we understand the concept very often. It's that of a redeemer. Now, you and I might know the idea or you've heard songs or you've heard Jesus been called the redeemer, the one who has bought us back and praise God he is. But that's based on a long history of understanding in Israel what a redeemer is. It is a title and a position, as it were, and a specific one that God made, and something that was very useful and important to the nation of Israel, and especially as it broke down into clans, as he gave them their parcels of land. So this is the concept we're going to try to explore a little bit this morning. Um, So that's before we jump into Ruth 3. Let me talk about this a little bit. comes into play especially... In Israel, a redeemer was one who was responsible for the economic well-being of a relative, of a family member. Especially, he really comes into play, a a redeemer really comes into play when a relative is in distress, when a family member is in some sort of peril, some kind of problem. For instance, number one, and I did breeze over this at the end last time, but we were trying to make hay and hurry up the time. So I'm going to slow down here a little bit and make sure we understand what a redeemer is. For instance, the type of peril that might happen, a family member could have come to financial ruin and have to sell themselves into slavery. In this sense, if a redeemer is financially able, they would buy them back. They would pay the owner for this person to have have their freedom again. That would be one of the things a redeemer could possibly do. A second thing a redeemer could possibly do, would he would, and again, I said this, but I want to rehash it again, If a family member was murdered, a redeemer would have the responsibility to hunt down the murderer, the one who did the killing, and avenge the murder and execute that person 
Again, that's based on God's law, not on revenge and some sort of nasty, you know, movie-like, you know, revenge. Rather, it was God's law coming back and taking vengeance on the person who had taken life. So a Redeemer would do that. The third thing a Redeemer would do would be that if someone got into some sort of law trouble, something with the law, and there's a lawsuit involved, a Redeemer would come in and be a help, someone who could come and stand in for the person. Someone who could come in and offer aid to that person in their time of need. But the fourth thing I'm going to highlight today is exactly why we're here and why this is so important to our text. The fourth and final thing for our story today is a Redeemer would step in to ensure that hereditary property or inheritance, land, inheritance of a clan never passed out of the clan. The Redeemer would buy back the land, all right, and that, so that no one would lose it, and the clan wouldn't be without that land. Remember, that's a God-given thing. So the Redeemer would step in to buy that land, to make sure it didn't get sold off to just whoever it was. In our day and age, that seems really nice. Like, you know, uh, I don't have, if I had a brother and he's going into foreclosure, like I'd come along and pay for his mortgage to make sure he didn't go into foreclosure. That sounds really nice. But it goes a little further than just being nice. Again, this is tying back to a principle that we may not understand because you know, we're very individual. We're very much American. We very much live in our own separate areas and places. Even my own family, my, one, my sister, I have one sister who lives in Pennsylvania. I live here in Virginia Beach. I have another sister who lives in Seattle. So we're all over the place. However, in this day and age, especially the way God set up Israel, what is really important here is tribal wholeness or clan wholeness. This idea, remember we talked at the beginning, the clan of Elimelech, basically like the family or the tribe of Elimelech. This is what we're talking about, and it's very important that this stay whole, and it's not broken up and shattered into many different pieces and fragments. So we're talking about unbroken family properties and relationships, again, that are all God-given. And by buying back the property, the original clan member, of the original clan member, the Redeemer restore that family wholeness. They would redeem it for the clan. So it's very important that this person... Now, it didn't, again, if they're financially able, they may not be able to do it. So it's, that's one it maybe a different thing here. But what we're talking about here is that a redeemer is one who could possibly step in and renew that family or clan wholeness. And that's what we're talking about today. Um, in, the, in our situation... Naomi, she owns this land. She's part of, she is part of Elimelech, and she owns this land, but she can't do anything with it. She has no sons to take care of it. She has nothing to do about it, and she has to have some sort of financial stability. So most likely, this piece of land that's Elimelech's is going to be sold, and it's going to go to whoever. Again, that's a problem. They don't want it to just go to whoever. That will break up that clan or that family wholeness. So you can understand Naomi's excitement when she realizes that they're in Boaz's field and that he has been so kind to Ruth. It's over and above this provisions and security. And she says, guess what else? He is a redeemer for us. He could possibly come in and buy us back and restore clan wholeness. So that's the beginning here for us to understand what it means when we're talking about a redeemer. Another thing that I think we ought to just quickly mention here is leveret marriage. This is not something we are, at least not that I know of, used to. This is something in God's law. Leveret marriage is this. If a man and woman get married, and the man, then they have no children at all together. 
and the man dies. He is without a seed. He has no offspring. His brother, if his brother is unmarried, he will then take the lever at marriage position and he will marry his brother-in-law's wife. When he does this, their offspring, their first offspring, will be in the name of his brother who is deceased. So the idea, again, what is it? We're coming back to this idea of clan or family or tribal wholeness. It's very important to the people of God. It's not just a ritual. It's, it's God's way and making sure that there's this, this wholeness, again, that he is set in place. So that's a little start here. I want you to understand that Redeemer doesn't mean that he has to marry her. What else is in play here, though? We're seeing Leverett marriage enter the picture. Boaz may not be as the brother necessarily, but he is part of the family, and he would, in a sense, qualify then to understand that he could take this type of position. So those are the two things at play in our scene. Let's read chapter 3. If you have your Bible in front of you, we're just going to read the first couple of verses in chapter 3 to start, and we'll go on. Verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she said, all that you say, I will do. We're in a new scene. The, the harvest time has come to almost an end here. We're in a new scene. It's a time of rejoicing. It's a time of harvest. Again, this is a good thing for God's people because there's been food again in the house of bread, Bethlehem. In the house of food, there is now food again. This is a time of rejoicing. So we, have, we see coming on this scene and we see Naomi and Ruth sitting down. Maybe they're sitting in some sort of nice pot of barley stew and... Uh, I don't know, like some wheat bread, muffins, I don't know. They're sitting down with the stuff that they've been given, that they've received from the fields, and they're sitting down to this meal. And Naomi's ready to talk about Ruth's future. She's like, so, Ruth, my daughter, shouldn't I seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Don't I want the best for you? Don't I want you to be in the house of a good man? Don't I want wellness for you and, and security more than just being in your mother-in-law's house? Naomi wants a permanent home for Ruth. And she wants to be in a house of a good husband, not just some person that she ends up falling in love with. She wants it to be a good man. And so we are not left without a clue. We know because we've already read all of chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we just talked about what a redeemer is and lever at marriage, hint, hint, that perhaps maybe she has an idea about who could be this husband. And you guessed it, Boaz. Look at verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative? with whose young women you were. Naomi wants Ruth to have Boaz. We've watched Naomi soften a little bit, right? We've seen her be from bitter old hag to seeing the provision of God, and she's starting to change. And her heart is starting to soften to what God is doing. And she's even put it back on God that the hesed of God or the love, faithful covenant love of God has shown us already that he cares about the living and the dead. So this is at play here. Naomi's starting to change. But now we find Naomi at the place where she is not quite satisfied with the situation. She wants a little more, both for herself, honestly, and, and, for, and for Naomi. She does, I mean, for, for Ruth. She does want more for Ruth. 
So certainly she is being taken care of, but let's face it, the wheat and the barley and the other grain harvests are coming to a close. And uh, Ruth is still living, we saw at the end of chapter 2, Ruth is still living with her mother-in-law. So Naomi hatches a plan. And it is risky. It's a very risky plan, and we're going to get into it. If they don't act now, Ruth will be back in the widow's hovel with Naomi, trying to figure out what to do next. They're probably going to be opening some sort of Etsy shop where they, you know, they sell low-quality pallet art or you know, handmade soaps. I don't know. That's like her, her quality. She's good at this kind of stuff. But instead of just that, we don't want, Ruth doesn't want to be in there, and Naomi doesn't want that for Ruth. Naomi wants a good place for her to go, and she wants her to be settled. And she wants, of course, in the back of her mind always, she wants offspring. She wants children. She wants grandchildren that her husband's, her husband's sons weren't able to give to her. So she wants that for her. So here's the plan. Verse 2. See, he is winnowing barley tonight. This is Boaz. Tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to the, observe, to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Whoa, Naomi. Can you give me that plan again? This is, this is sounding... Yeah, I know. I see all your faces. Yeah. Yeah, this is risky and risque, and it's, 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 it's weird, this is a, there's a lot packed in here that we need to make sure we understand. And by the way, we need to be, have a sobriety here, understanding that this is not a light thing. What she's asking her to do is extremely risky, and as we'll see, potentially dangerous, both for her soul and for her life. So quickly let me set you the stage. The winnowing process. The sheaves have been brought in from the field, They've been threshed on the floor. That means all the, all the kernels fall off of the ends of the straw, basically. They gather them up, and what they're going to do is they're going to pour them out, and they're going to use the wind to their advantage. The wind, because on all these little kernels are likely husks or shells around them. You've heard of the term chaff before. They need to blow away the chaff, and they've got to wait for a right spot so they... Even a threshing floor is in the right spot. They want to put it where wind normally goes, where it's normally whipping through. So they're going to take this, let's say, some sort of container or pot, and they're going to pour it out. As they pour it out, the shells are also coming out with the kernels. The kernels are heavier. They're falling straight to the floor. And the shells, or these husks, or this chaff, is being blown away. So now we're at the point where they're basically at the end of their harvest. They've done all the, the actual gleaning. They've, you know, they've, they've cut the stuff down. They've brought it in. They've threshed it. And now they're winnowing. Again, this is a big process, and it's a, a, one for rejoicing. One for the men would come and they'd work all day, they'd feast and party at night, and then they'd actually sleep with the grain to make sure that you know, no one would take advantage and swoop in and take the fully processed grain as, as, as a thief. So that's why we actually see them staying at the grain at nighttime. It's not like they could lock the doors or anything like that. So since Boaz is going to definitely be at the specific place, and since these are the specific conditions, Naomi says, this is my plan. Listen. Step one, wash up, wash yourself, put on perfume, dress yourself presentably, change, put on your cloak. Uh, we may not think of much of this right now, but the reader, as soon as they read us, they know that this is a formula. These are three things that we see commonly 
when we are addressing it. Scripture does this. You'll see it a couple other places. It's a very serious formula. It is the formula for a woman who is preparing to be intimate with a man. This is not a light thing. It's not something like we... Many of the ladies in here would do that. They'd wash up and perfume themselves and change their clothes. That's what we should do. But in this day, this is not what's happening. You can think about how scarce water is, the, the expense of perfume. And again, one more thing I want to just point out. She's not just changing like into her other cloak. Most likely what's happening here, she is changing from her widow's clothing into a cloak that is showing that she is not a widow. She is a regular available woman in a sense. Very much changing so that you could see there's a, a, a difference between what she was wearing before and now she's wearing this cloak. Very important to our story. It's more than just that, like I said. The step two, though. Tonight, you'll go down to the threshing floor, incognito. No one needs, should know who you are. Stay undercover until Boaz finished feasting and drinking and wait for him to lie down. And when he does, make sure you mark the spot where he lies down. So we know she's going to send her to the, to the threshing floor, but undercover? Why, Naomi? Undercover? Incognito? Why would you want Ruth to be deceptive about her identity? And even more surprising, why would you have Ruth mark out the place where Boaz is going to sleep? What are you trying to do here, Naomi? This is, this is weird. This is risky. This is too much. Step three. When he's down for the night, uncover his feet and lie down. And what then? Naomi says, and he will tell you what to do. Let me take you through this for a minute and make you squirm like the original readers would have squirmed. Step one, again, preparing to be intimate with a man. That's what she's talking about. Ruth is not a married woman. Step two is going to remind our readers of two similar, two similar stories that are not good. Tamar, she goes and she conceals who she is. She changes out of her widow's clothes to, to, fool, to fool Judah and to make sure that she does what's necessary for the family line to be propagated in Genesis 38. That's not good, by the way. That's not good. The second one, you've got Lot, who is who? The father of the, you remember? The Moabites and his daughters who get him drunk. We're seeing and making sure that Boaz has finished his eating and drinking. We're, all this, the reader is sitting there saying, oh no, oh no. And then step three, she's going to his bed and uncovering his feet and lying down. Um, I think it's safe to say without going into any detail here, without going into any detail that Naomi has put Ruth and Boaz, for that matter, in a very compromising position. It's not funny. It's not good. It's bad. This is not a good position to be in. And this is the plan that she has hatched for the sake of Ruth and, and trying to make sure that this thing goes through. Naomi is willing to risk the integrity of Ruth and Boaz to possibly get what she thinks is best for everyone. She is willing to use whatever means possible for the sake of gaining happiness and the security of the family. She is willing to potentially disobey God's commands to get what seems to be best and most satisfying. 
Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? In this story, anybody remember this? Someone else went around and went out of God's way to get something for his family. How about her husband, Elimelech, who took his family away from God's presence to the land of Moab, not right, to do something that he thought was best to provide for his family as in a famine. But again, how did that end for him in the short term? He died, and both of his sons died. This is not good. So, what does Ruth say? <laughs> okay. It's actually even more than that. All that you say, I will do. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went down, went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. If you can't feel a suspense now, open your ears, first of all. The suspense is killing us. What is she doing here? Ruth is fulfilling. She is doing what she was told to do. What will happen? Verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman laid at, lay at his feet. You can imagine his surprise. I mean, there she is, a clean, nice-smelling, unknown woman sitting at his feet at midnight in a place where is, where is used to prostitution and these types of things are normal at a grain, a celebration like this. You got to understand, Boaz is looking at this and saying, uh-oh, what's happening here? Ruth has put herself in this place. And this was Naomi's plan, by the way. You're sitting here, and it's like when you watch a movie, and you're like, don't go into that door. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Everyone is waiting for this and saying, stop, please, please don't do something stupid. Don't be like Tamar and Judah. Don't be like Lot and his daughters. Please don't do this. Verse 9, he responds. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Absolutely nothing seductive about that. Instead, she tells him exactly her intentions. This is the Ruth that we know and that we expect, and we, we, this is what she, she hasn't changed. She is going to follow the plan into its entirety, except for the ending. She will not sit idly by and let Boaz squirm to make some sort of strange decision that he has to in the moment. Instead, she's there for one reason and one reason only to use the situation to boldly request that Boaz fulfill his role as, what we talked about earlier, a kinsman redeemer. To further seek for herself and Naomi what fullness God would provide. The, one that, uh, the man that just so happened to be around at the threshing floor that night. And by the way, if I just want to clear this up to go back also, Boaz isn't drunk. He knows what's going on. He hasn't had too much to drink. The text says that his heart was merry, for sure, but he wasn't drunk, or that he was so far gone that he didn't know what was going on like Lot in Moab. And all of our worries, our uneasiness, they subside. The situation has been put to rest. Okay, I can kind of breathe a little bit easier. Ruth has made everything clear, and now she has left Boaz in the driver's seat and said, take, you, take us under your wing. Verse 10, Boaz responds, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, 
you have made this last kindness, or hesed, by the way, greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. First thing out of Boaz's mouth is a blessing from the Lord because of her kindness to her mother-in-law. This echoes, if you don't remember, what we talked about last week in chapter 2. Do you remember how he responds to her? It's the same way. He praises her. He praises her for her kindness to her mother-in-law. And that's, again, how he's taking this. Instead of taking it the way that we just did, and all the readers are freaking out what's going to happen, he says, blessed are you. You did what was right. You cared about your mother-in-law. You have shown great hesed, kindness, faithful love. That's what we've talked about all this time. Now the great part is that now he puts it back on Ruth. This isn't even just attributed to God. Ruth is the one stepping in here. And he says, blessed are you because you showed faithful covenant love to your mother-in-law through this action asking me to be the redeemer. And by the way, if you're wondering about this, Boaz points out that Ruth could have had, she had every right in a sense to marry who she wanted to. Whether she wanted to marry a poor man, like for love, like she wanted that, or a rich man for money. Instead, she chose the man that would benefit her mother-in-law, Naomi, instead of herself. She chose love. By the way, don't think for a moment that like Hollywood and some, maybe some poor teachers in the past have really played like this Ruth and Boaz story. So there's some sort of romance like in the sheaves, like something's happening and they're like giving each other love notes. That's not what's going on. Most likely, he even points it out, you could have gone after a younger man. Boaz is not a young man. He is older, he's a landowner, he is over many men, and most likely this is separated by quite a few different number of years between these two people, Ruth and Boaz. Ruth has shown Naomi great hesed by leaving her country, committing herself to her mother-in-law, but now she has shown even greater hesed by her willingness to provide Naomi an heir by marrying a redeemer such as Boaz. Let's go back, verse 11. And now my daughter... Do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. <sighs> it can be a little easier. Not only has she made her case and is she upright, Boaz responds in a blessing and now he says, don't be afraid. Instead, <laughs> I will do for you all that you ask. And for my fellow townsmen, because they all know that you're a worthy woman. Boaz will do it. And that's not all. Verse 12, there's something else that we need to consider here. Verse 12, and now it is true that I am a redeemer. You've got it right. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than me. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. We're all excited because we're like, okay, they did the right thing. They're together. They've got this connection already. We know all the history. And Boaz, is, in his integrity, comes along and says, yeah, but there's actually someone even closer as a redeemer. And we really need to go through the proper lanes of, of, of legality here, make sure that we do things right. And if he'll redeem you, that's good because it'll, it'll rescue you and Naomi and it'll take care of the situation. But if he won't, I promise you, no, not, not just I promise you. He sums it up where right? he says, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Relax. He proves it. So he tells her then, remain tonight, which by the way is a protection for, the, for Ruth. The word here is different. It's not like remain, like lay with me tonight. No, 
The Hebrew wording here is remain in this lodging tonight. So that the, the reader is totally, all the like, ambiguity is totally cleared up. It's not an ambiguous statement. It's on purpose that now I want you to lodge here for protection. Because a young lady should not be out in the streets at night, especially, again, at the harvest time. So the first thing is, remain here tonight. He's protecting her. Second, in the morning, we'll see if the other redeemer will do his duty. If he does, that's a good thing. We all need to be on the same page. That's a good thing, Ruth. We want that to happen to you. But if he doesn't, and I'm not taking this lightly, he says, I swear to God, but as he lives, because of his living, I will redeem you. And she does. She lies down until morning. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize her. Recognize another, excuse me. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it, in, put it on her. Then she went into the city. She gets up before, before daylight. You can imagine why, right? This is, we, it, if it sounded suspicious, it would look even more suspicious that she's laying at the feet of Boaz at the grain festival. She gets up before that to make sure there's no misunderstandings about what she's doing there. Boaz fills her shawl with six measures of barley. It was enough that he had to put it on her, it says, kind of like put it on a pack mule. Now, there's no like statement, doesn't say ephah like we talked about earlier. This is different. Most likely, this is still a very large amount. If it was an ephah, there's no way that she could possibly care because it'd be like 300 pounds. So it's not six ephahs. Most likely, it's a smaller amount that would be enough for many, many days and, and weeks of provision for the ladies. So he does that. Again, six, measures it out. He puts it on her, and the scene ends with Ruth heading home. Verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Did you catch that? The author records Ruth's statement concerning not like all that happened, but rather concerning the provision of barley. That seems to me almost like an afterthought, like, Oh, when you go, take this thing for your mother-in-law. That's, that's really nice but rather what the author brings to the front instead of like, he says, I told you all about whatever they talked about last night, but then he gives speech to the provision. That's important. As a listener, we need to cue in on that. Whatever the, the author puts in speech, we need to pay attention to. He puts this idea into speech. And look at the words of Boaz. It's very important. It's not just a kind gesture. See if this rings a bell, okay? You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Anybody get it? Remember what she had talked about? I went to Moab full, but God brought me back empty. Boaz is making sure that she understands this is about providing, not only for Ruth, but for Naomi. And going back, and he's making sure that he is the one fulfilling what God has always been about from the first place. God is about fullness. Yes, she went through emptiness in a sense, but he's not going to leave her bitter and nasty and empty. Rather, Boaz puts it into speech. I love this. He says, don't go back empty-handed. Here are six measures of barley for your mother-in-law. Not for her necessarily. She says for her mother-in-law. So this is fascinating. It's fascinating for another reason. Quickly, this statement is laden with all kinds of hints, by the way. Uh, think about the number, six. 
That is one less of the number of completion, which would be seven. I'm not making too much of this, but I want you to think about this. The action has not been completed yet. All is not done. But it's almost like a pledge, like of something to come. In fact, think about the gift for a minute. What does he give for grain or seed? Anybody catch the nuance there? When someone has a baby, it is their seed, it is their offspring. It's almost as if Boaz is making this statement, the author is bringing to light the fact that this is a pledge of what is to come, potential seed to come. That's not a done deal yet. We know that. That's why there's still chapter 4. But we know that he is giving us as a pledge for something better to come, and he is giving her an over, overabundance of what she needs. So Naomi replies, verse 18, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so for us, the curtain comes down on chapter 3, right? What will happen? We know that something's going to happen. We know she's going to be redeemed somehow. But right now, as readers, we're, we're excited, but we're like, oh, I really want it to be Boaz, but maybe it's some other guy that we have no idea who it is, but this other redeemer that's closer. But we know that she's going to be taken care of. So again, we're still kind of excited. We really kind of want that to happen. So we await for chapter 4. Now, the question I was taught to ask every time I preached was, so what? And I think it's a good question. It helps us remind us that, okay, Chris, what, what, like, what, are you, what are you saying? It's a really cool story, lots of fun stuff. What is Ruth trying to tell us through chapter 3? What do you want to tell us through chapter 3? What should I be hearing? What should I be thinking about? Two main big things. The first thing I want us to make sure that we understand here. Think about that he has taken her from emptiness to fullness. Excuse me for a minute. He has continued to show that he will not leave her empty. He's continued to be good for his promises. He continues, I'm talking about God, to provide for both Ruth and Naomi. In their hardest times, he has continued to supply. He has given her Ruth. He gave Naomi Ruth in the first place, right? He has given her provision through the grains received for the gleaning. He has given her a connection to a wonderful potential man who happens to qualify as a redeemer. And after today, after chapter 3, not only will her family property be redeemed, she's even given the possibility of offspring. Potentially, she'll have grandsons, granddaughters. I think it's pretty plain for all of us to see, number one, is that God will provide. He always does. He always will. Don't doubt Him. I don't know what you're going through, but don't doubt our God. He will always provide for us. It may not be in your time. It may be not the things that we think it should be. Don't doubt your God, though. He will provide. But the second thing, today I think it's time to ask a question that is not actually exclusive to Ruth. It's a very large question, and people have been talking about it for a long time. How do God's actions work together with the actions of humans as we are responsible to Him? How does that work together to accomplish His purposes? Does God act separately from people? Does God work through people? Does God really care what we do, by the way? Today's passage has given us an example that we need to consider. All right, We're going to walk through this, and I want you to think about this well with me. The text makes it pretty clear. Naomi wants what's best for her daughter-in-law, but she's willing to kind of do whatever it takes to get there, including sin including doing what God has not commanded. Securing a help for Redeemer, that's what she wants. 
And I'm trying to be careful here again, but Naomi is asking Ruth to put herself in the same slot as Tamar and Lot's daughters. She's saying, go into there and we'll see what happens. This is not right. We talk about this would be a disgrace. This is sin. It would be another mark to show this is not the way things should be. She never should have put her in that position. And Ruth, what is she doing responding to it this way? Why in the world would she do that? We've already seen that she's a virtuous woman. Why would Ruth enter into this thing? Well, if I can step back for a minute, Ruth looks at the plan, but Ruth sees the silver lining. You see, she knows what she's all about, what she's trying to do. She, she sees this, and we already saw from her response, she had no intention of ever going to the unspoken, like what could happen over here. Instead, she immediately told Boaz what she wanted. And we see by Boaz's response that it's not about her wanting what she wants. It's about Naomi. The reason she does this, she goes through this plan, is for Naomi. Her covenant love and faithfulness to her mother-in-law. She wants to obey and love and help her, and so she's going to use this as an opportunity to potentially secure Naomi's future and to bring about the offspring, potentially, again, of Elimelech and his clan and restore that family wholeness. So Ruth, even more so, she is virtuous because she uses this as an opportunity to present this to her mother-in-law, be faithful to her. So what else could she do? She does this. And Boaz, not only does he do what is right, by the way, but he takes the responsibility upon himself and makes sure that this escapade isn't turned out improperly. Sends her away early, gives her grain, gives her things, makes sure she protects her, and that he will take care of this in the morning. From all that we know, and now we're watching, we're watching God provide a redeemer for Naomi and potentially offspring. So, my question, does God care what you and I do? Does he care what Ruth does? Was it okay for Naomi to use potentially sinful means to get what was good? It's a very different question, actually, than from what does God care about what you want to do, what you do. Was it okay, let me go ask one, ask one more question. Was it okay for Elimelech to move away from God's presence to feed his family? Think about this. Was that okay for him to do? He did this, and what do we get? For Elimelech? Well, because let me start with Naomi. She goes through with this plan, and what do we get? The plan actually worked. Not because of her greatness necessarily, but it did work, right? We see this start to play out. For Elimelech, what happens though? He dies. We talked about this. His sons died. But may I just open our minds a little bit and think a little broader? The whole book of Ruth is premised on the fact that he went to Moab, and that's where they got the Moabite, Ruth. Without going to Moab and this happening, they never would have had this girl. Does he care what we do? Of course he cares what we do. Does he care about disobedience? By the way, yes, he cares about disobedience. That was not right. They did not do the right thing. What Naomi sent her in to do potentially was not right. And what did God do? I want us to see that God works in two ways today, out of our text. First, God works despite our disobedience. Sometimes he works around it with some sort of a workaround, working with someone else to fulfill it. Other times, we see God work through disobedience. That's exactly what's happened here. He's used this disobedience, the things that should not be, for his own glory and for the sake of bringing back 
Ruth to, Ruth to Bethlehem and for the sake of potentially bringing her together with a redeemer. He uses it. It's amazing. Glory be to God. It's amazing. He can take a man and his family who have disregarded God's plan and use them to fetch the great-grandmother of the messianic line from Moab. That's astounding. But, and don't, don't miss this, please, listen. The fact that God can use disobedience does not mean that we are free to disobey. What, are you going to toss out the rest of the Bible that tells us to do what is right? What, are we going to not obey commands that he's told us and that he shows examples over and over of people who have honestly and lovingly and in faith obeyed God? Just because he uses disobedience doesn't mean that you and I have the choice to kind of do what we want to do and disobey. Are you going to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Sounds familiar, right? God forbid. No, 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 no. Second thing. So first, God works through disobedience. The second thing, God works through our obedience. Ruth and Boaz show us what obedience brings. They are not perfect, but they obey. They did not create the blessings for themselves. This is not like your best life now. Rather, they trusted God and they do what they are told to do. And don't miss this either. God used their obedience. You hear that? Your obedience is not without an answer. God uses this obedience. He used Ruth's hard work persistence and faithfulness to get to the field of Boaz and actually bring home the grain, right? He uses Boaz's kindness and his love and his gracious provision to provide Ruth for Ruth and Naomi. God uses their actions that night in the threshing floor to set up the redemption of the family of Elimelech, their obedience. And as we'll see next week, God has used all these things in the story to bring about the greater significance of his story. That's right. I heard Jesus over there. Don't give it away. God is at work in their life. Listen for a minute, though. Do you think that Boaz and Ruth knew somehow that in their life, oh, you know, I'm doing this stuff. I think God might be doing something awesome in my life. Like this is, or maybe I got a, I got a message, like something's going to happen. Like I better, I better obey this time, you know, because then God could use me maybe. These people had no idea. They are trying to live their life like you and me, just like you and me, faithfully trying to obey Scripture and love Him with our heart, soul, and mind. That's what they're doing. And yet God comes along, both in their disobedience and in their obedience, and he works his plan. And he brings himself glory. So, what do we walk away with? Don't miss that God is in, in these circumstances in your life. He is working to, to, to provide for you and to also bring himself ultimate glory. Your life is not trivial. It's not. Maybe what you do piddling around might be your life. God made you for a specific purpose. And it's not to be great, by the way. It's to be used in his grand design and bring all glory to Jesus Christ. And that's why we say praise God. You can trust him. And we ought to worship him. Do not lose hope, friends and brothers. Our God is the God of provision, and he will continue. He promises to. Let's worship our glorious King. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day, and we ask that, Lord, you would make us and cause us to love and trust you.
God, we see your provision and we know that um, we cannot provide for ourselves. We, we try and we want to, but God, we want to trust you. So we ask that you'd help us to trust you, that we would lay aside our own ambitions and that, God, we would submit to your goodness and, and to your plan and love you supremely. In Jesus' name.